Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University. And we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. C.C. Calhoun. But first, we like to check in on health news. Harlan, what's, what's on your mind? Well, gee, Howie, uh, maybe we should go back and start talking about the pandemic again, because it, it's sort of you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving. I mean, we're we're in at this moment in time where society really wants to pretend as if there's no pandemic occurring. And yet, at least where we live, you know, the rates are increasing, concerns are rising, and and there's a lot of apprehension in the air. Let's just go through some of the things that are, that are going on. So, you know, we've seen this, these new variants sort of come through. We're now at BA4, BA5. That's kind of starting to crest, I think, in the second quarter. And uh, I think many regions in the U.S. now are seeing, uh, you know, a smaller number of cases, but not the Northeast. Northeast is starting to see see growth. And I think the expectation is that that will start going around the country. And, and emblematic of it is what went on in D.C. after the correspondence dinner, after the gridiron dinner. You know, you're seeing people going to events and, and lots of people coming down still testing positive. The, um, the global deaths though, continue to steadily fall with infection fatality risk of Omicron, at least in a report from the UK, now being in the range of flu. So so what we're seeing is the spread of the virus, people getting sick, especially for the vaccinated population. We may be getting to a point where, yeah, this isn't uh, completely benign, but we've driven down the risk, at least on this set of variants, to the point where it's, you know, sort of rivaling flu. And that, that's what the data from from the UK has to say. Um, and just to be clear, uh, when you say the the inf- inf- uh, infection fatality rate is down, we're talking about the overall population. So a lot of that is impacted by prior vaccine, by prior uh, infection acquired immunity, and the presence of Paxlovid and other therapeutics, right? So I think this is, yeah, there are three things involved when people sort of hear about this. One is what's going on with the variant itself. What we're seeing is increased infectivity, that that as this virus evolves, it gets a little smarter about how to spread among we humans. And so it seems to be doing so with, with sort of greater ease over time. The, the pathogenicity, the danger of the variant, uh, if anything, seems to be decreasing. But how it manifests in our population has to do with what treatments we have available, the host, us, you know, how, how we are, and the the virus itself. And I say that because when we were in, you know, February 2020, March 2020, even end of January 2020 in the U.S., no no one had ever seen this before. Their bodies weren't prepared. Not only were there no vaccines, there had been no prior infections. It was a naive, what we call naive population. So we were very susceptible, susceptible to the harm and and susceptible to the infection. We're, the, the population has changed now. Lots of people have been infected, so, so they have antibodies hanging around and vaccinated. As you say, there are now some treatments that are effective, and the virus itself doesn't seem to be taking a turn towards more dangerous. If anything, it seems to be a little bit less dangerous. Now, the the pace of emergence of new variants with even higher transmission potential continues to be concerning. And we're seeing, even out of South Africa, the emergence of several new variants. But but a, a question that experts that I talk to have is whether or not I mean, these variants are coming off the sort of same tree. They're very close to the prior ones. But but we've had some major emergence of 
you know, variants that are very different. Omicron was very different than, for example, Delta that preceded. And and so the question is about whether that's going to happen. So that that's all kind of percolating in the background. I'll just say one more thing that might be on people's mind, which is what about this second booster, the fourth dose of the vaccine? And, uh, you know, in this country, it's it's authorized for people, I believe, over 50. And yet not many people are getting that. In fact, not a lot of people have even gotten the third dose in this country. And we, as you know, there's still people who haven't been vaccinated at all. But, uh, you know, the evidence out of Israel, and that's the best evidence there is, suggests that 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 fourth dose, if you get to that far out, does provide a pretty durable protection against severe disease. There's some question about whether the short term protection against infection, you you know, whether that protection wanes, it's only short term, maybe eight weeks, something like that. But but the protection against severe disease seems to be more durable. And then one more thing of interest, some people are saying, well, I'm going to hold out for the next generation of vaccines. And I can only say that the data so far from uh, Moderna and is that the this this one that is including the original plus, uh, you know, beta booster that that is uh, bivalent. It's got more coverage hasn't so far shown that it's better than the original. So why is that? I know a lot of people are discussing issues around what the mechanism of that might be. But so far, we don't have evidence that the vaccines around the corner are dominantly better than the ones we have now. But there is a thought maybe by the fall we might have one that might be better. But if you're going to get the fourth dose now, that'll be six months later. You know, you'll likely uh, it'll be time for a new one. So we're still sorting all this out. I, you know, but I don't know whether you got the fourth dose, but but I my parents did. And I, actually, this week I decided I was going to get the fourth dose uh, and uh, I, I went ahead and did it. Yeah, my, my parents obviously got uh, the fourth dose a few weeks ago. I'm still not, but I'm exactly six months out uh, this week from my uh, third dose. I'm trying to wait out a little bit longer, uh, but I that's what I tell people. If you're at high risk for a uh, adverse outcome, um, that you should be uh, being fully vaccinated. And I tell people, please test early and treat early. Like the testing is still really important for people at high risk in particular, because it allows you to get treatment earlier and the treatments we have now do make a difference. You know, the only other key news I think is that there's a lot of talk about what the right for Paxlovid, you know, whether or not people who, who stop it according to the current recommendations end up rebounding. There, we still have stuff to work out around treatments, vaccines, this epidemiology, you know, it's interesting. Two years in, lots of progress, still lots of questions, still lots of questions. Couldn't agree more. I've said to people, like, just because we did a trial using Paxlovid for five days doesn't mean that's the right dosing. It Maybe it should have been seven. Maybe it should have been three with a few days off and three more. We don't know, but hopefully we'll get those answers. Yep, yep. Okay, let's get to our guest, Howie. I'm really excited to introduce Dr. C.C. Calhoun. Uh, Dr. Calhoun is an assistant professor of medicine and an assistant professor of pediatrics uh, in hematology at Yale Cancer Center. She's a hematologist oncologist who specializes in adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease. She wants to help bridge the health literacy gap between providers and young sickle cell patients and has dedicated her research work to systematically improving transitions of care from adolescents to adult sickle cell care. 
In 2019, she received the Posen Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Leadership at Yale. That's how I met her. And she is one of the health equity champions at the Yale's Equity Research and Innovation Center, led by Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. She received her medical degree from Wayne State University in her native state of Michigan, uh, her Master of Science in Public Health, and clinical fellowship at Washington University School of Medicine, and now obviously her MBA from Yale University School of Management. So first of all, could not be happier to have you joining us today on the podcast. And I wanna start off by asking you to tell us what your journey has been like, because I've heard you tell this before. I wanna hear about how you go from Michigan to St. Louis to Yale, and, and what is your thought process about how you're gonna impact the world? Yeah, so first of all, thank you both for having me. Uh, it's such a fantastic, it's always great to be in conversation with you, but I also appreciate the opportunity to talk about my own work, but highlight sickle cell patients. So before I start talking about me, thanks for giving me the space for them. So that's such an interesting question because I think when you look back in hindsight, things kind of coalesce in ways you never imagined. Um, but, you know, I think uh, I knew that I wanted to make an impact. I didn't know how that was going to be. And each piece at every step kind of has become more and more clear. And I hope that it continues that way. So like you said, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, um, best city in the world. Don't argue me about it. Um, and um, I grew up on the east side of Detroit, which is like notorious for kind of being the uh, less refined side of town. Um, I kind of don't think I realized I had any disadvantages or that I was poor until I went to a very nice private high school in the suburbs. Um, Cranbrook Kingswood is the name of it. For reference, uh, Mitt Romney went there when his dad was governor. And we have like uh, Pinsky and Hertz family. It was designed by um, a little Saarinen who's son designed Ingalls Rink here um, in the Arch in St. Louis. So that was kind of a full circle moment. But it kind of, one of the biggest things it did for me was exposure, right? It showed me like the huge contrast of and every level of, of kind of um, a privilege. Um, and in many ways, I was able to access that and um, have space to be curious. And I remember thinking when I was in high school, I was like, oh, you know, I really like working with athletes. I really like, you know, maybe I want to be a physical therapist, but a girl I played basketball with her dad was chief of general surgery at this local hospital. And he was my, I consider him to be my first mentor. And he said, Cece, I don't know. You sure you don't want to be a doctor? So um, for our, uh, the month of May in our senior year, we got to do a senior May project. He's like, you should come shadow me. So I got to shadow him in the hospital as a high school student because he, you know, had authority. And that was my exposure to medicine. And I was like, yeah, I do. I do think I want to do this. And when I went to undergrad, that's when um, at University of Michigan, that's when I kind of developed this really social justice lens. And while my family growing up and my, particularly my father had always encouraged my sister and I had, had ingrained in us a deep sense of pride about being black and our culture, you know, it coalesced with medicine for me uh, when I got to undergrad. I was like, yeah, I still want to be a doctor, but I want to do something that's going to impact my community. Right. And so that was the first time I participated in research. I got to work with this um, anesthesiologist, Carmen Green, who looked at um, prescription medication availability by zip code. That was my first exposure to kind of like health disparities and what does that look like? And, and there are inequities. Like it's not just from when I went to high school and I'll look at all these fine things here in the suburbs and, you know, it happens in our medical care. And I was like, okay, cool. So 
I'm not going to be, you know, I don't think I'll be an orthopedic surgeon anymore, but, you know, I do want to do health and I want to do it in a way that affects my community. And so applied to med school and came back home for med school, which was, I think, one of the biggest gifts for me because it's such a challenging time. And to be surrounded by my family, they kept me grounded. And, you know, my pediatric rotation was a hemoc floor at Children's Hospital in Michigan. And that's where I saw my first sickle cell patient who had a stroke. And she was eight years old and she had an overt stroke and she couldn't move. Uh, I think it was the right side of her body. Now, in hindsight, I know that that shouldn't, shouldn't happen. We should be screening for uh, vascular changes in persons with sickle cell uh, age zero to 16. Um, and so we should have been able to detect that and have her on chronic transfusions. And maybe she was identified and maybe there were barriers that we don't know about. For me, that lo- I left an impact. Um, and so... I was like, okay, this is it for me. It's medicine. It's my community. I love the science. I'm going to work with patients with sickle cell. So I just want to make sure for our listeners, can you just tell us again, what is sickle cell disease? So sickle cell disease is an inherited disease of the red blood cells. It's something that patients are born with. And um, I often explain it that instead of looking like a jelly donut, which is kind of what our normal red blood cells look like, the cells, because of a small change in our genetics, result in a shape that looks like a banana or a crescent or a sickle. In addition to being misshapen, they're also very brittle and very sticky. And if we think about our blood vessels as pipes, those cells can get kind of clogged up in the pipes, stick to one another, and damage the blood vessels. In any place in our body where there's small blood vessels, you get consequences from sickle cell. Um, Most people think of it as pain, and that's the most common presenting place. But just like that eight-year-old that I saw, any place where we have tiny vessels, like our brain, can be subject to complications from sickle cell. And oftentimes, this overlies a background of socioeconomic disparity, of um, injustice in health, um, making the care of patients with sickle cell much more complicated. And so when I saw this young lady when I was in, in med school who was eight, you know, for me, it represented the nexus of all the things that have been important to me. Um, and it's become more salient to me, you know, because I grew up on the east side of Detroit. I got every vaccine I got was in a federally qualified healthcare center. You know, I now recognize likely the physicians taking care of me were in my neighborhood, you know, working um, because they wanted to help get their student loans. We had a, the area where there was incentive for student loan repayment where I lived. And I'm thankful for the, the care that I got. And so now I think that it is my job as a healthcare provider, not just to change policy and practice through research, but to also take all the knowledge I had and give it to people who were me, who were the girl in the FQHC, to care for themselves. And I think that that happens on every level. And that's kind of what has motivated my journey. So I think I stopped at med school, but so I kind of knew then I was like, I'm going to going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a sickle cell doctor. I want to do transplant, right? Which is like the only cure. I was like, this is the only cure for sickle cell. Naturally, if you're going to affect the people, you got to do transplant, right? Um, but as I went through my fellowship, and again, this is the importance of mentors to me. I met um, a woman, Allison King. She's a um, MD, PhD. She has her MPH at WashU. She's a pediatric hematologist as well. And she does health outcomes research who helped me understand the impact I could have through outcomes and clinical research and how I could reach more people than just the ones that I see in clinic, but ones that I may never see through through doing rigorous research and, and, and taking this passion and putting it into a career. 
And so that's when I was like, okay, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do research. Um, and you know, I like interacting with people. <laughs> um, I um, love taking challenges that I see in clinic and getting the, the privilege to say, okay, let me answer them in a, in a rigorous and structured way. Um, and it's a, it's a true gift. Um, and so, it's a, it, I have mentioned it's kind of funny because my family is like, well, you're a doctor, like you see patients. You know, like there are no doctors in my family at any level, no cousins, nothing. Um, and so they're like, but wait, okay, wait, how many? Okay, but if you're not in clinic, well, what do you mean, girl? Like, what are you doing? And so I'm trying to explain to them, like, yeah, I see challenges in clinic. And then I try to use these methods. And then I ask these questions, but I spend a lot of time, you know, writing. <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, okay. Um, but it, it's really, really a privilege that I hope will have lasting impact. Um, and you know, that work has led me here and, and to you, Holly, to the School of Management, because, you know, one of the beautiful things about research is that, like, when you ask questions, you end up having more questions <laughs> and and learning about um, uh, the barriers that sickle cell patients face. You know, I realize like, it's kind of a systemic issue and I don't really know how this system works. And so the opportunity for the Pose and Commonwealth Fund Fellowship opened up for me to get that knowledge and now I'm just trying to apply it and do my best. No, that's that's terrific. Here's a question I have for you, just listening about your journey. So, you know, early on in high school, you end up in an environment that's very different from where you're growing up. And, you know, we hear a lot and talk a lot about how we can create the means by which we can create more diverse and inclusive schools and workplaces. And, you know, medicine's got so much work to do in this area. And one of the central challenges is that, okay, you bring somebody in, how do they feel welcome? How do they feel safe? How can we help them feel confident? Maybe you could just reflect a little bit, like what was that like at the beginning and what were the skills and what can we learn from your journey that can make it better for people who, who follow besides just making sure that our environments and our ecosystems are more diverse so that people don't feel yeah. that it, it's such a foreign place. But, yeah. but can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think one thing too, I want you, I lived on campus, so I was a boarding student in high school. So I was uh -huh, like 13 wow. living away from my parents. Um, How far was it from your home? Probably like 45 minutes, which seemed like a lifetime. Uh -huh. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, it was really kind of preparation for the future. I mean, you must sense. have been nervous just to oh, get the first day, start there. I cried and I cried and I told my dad, I want to go home. Huh. Okay. Yeah, in fact, when I was applying for the scholarship that paid for my high school, I had gotten really obstinate. I was like, I don't want to go. I'm not taking the test. And my mom called my grandmother and she was like, just try baby. And I was like, okay. Yeah. You know, and then I ended up wow. getting the school ride and she was like, you're going. And the first day I was like, I want to go home. And I mean, the campus is gorgeous. Okay. Beautiful. Like Yale looks great. Okay. But my high school campus yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. is beautiful. Okay. And I just cried and I wanted to go home. And I just remember my grandma saying, okay, just try, just try. And I mean, high school is such a developmentally important place. Like, you know, you are a young person, you're trying to figure out your way in the world. You know, that was one of the spaces I got to do. And so for me, I think part of it was a foundation that, you know, my parents had already set in terms of like the pride I had and being like who I was. Um, but I think it was my high school experience that kind of taught me that it's important to know yourself especially in the spaces where you are the only one. And it's something that has, has carried me through every experience. You know, I am often the only one, you know, 
Like yeah, still, right? Even still. still. Yeah. yeah, even still. And it's 2022, which is very strange, right? But I think that that was where I started to lay the foundation of really getting to know what is important to me um, and my own why. But I would have never been challenged to do that at that age if I was still in a familiar environment. I think the second piece was never, ever underestimating the importance of our educators and having adults and mentors and sponsors, Howie, who believe in you when you don't believe in yourself, right? When they see you, when you see yourself as a small, somebody who's small and unimportant, but there are people who you admire who really pull out of you um, things within yourself. It's so important um, because it's hard. It's a very, it can be very, very challenging. But I really believe that the work that I do, that we do, the community that I have, that we do is so important. And there have been moments where um, there's so much room for self-doubt always. But then I think about like the, the undergrads that I mentor who are trying to go to med school and that's like the final, st- it seems like the biggest thing in the world for them, like it's to get into med school. And you're like, no, actually like there's steps after that and you can do this, like you're capable. Or I think about my own like research lab and team I'm building, um, one of which has Howie students in it. And um, she's just, one the young lady is just incredible and brilliant. She's applying for her first award. And we took some time as a group to kind of like talk through it. And I'm like, if they don't pick you, they're fools because you are the best person for this job. And her saying to me, you know, Cece, like that means a lot. Like being in this space means a lot. Because when I was in high school and, the, and everybody looked different for me. And when my peers who were also learning to mature also were like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, I think having a community around you that sees you, that believes you, believes in you, and allows you to be your full self is so important. And so I think one of my biggest privileges is being able to be authentic in every space that I'm in. Like even now, you know, I, I feel um, that all the work that I do is for my sickle cell patients is to, you know, my, but my biggest, one of my biggest successes is, is being able to see others and make them feel seen by being my authentic self. Um, and I think I learned that lesson in high school. Oh, oh my God, to, Howie! I want her. I want to sign up. I want her to be my mentor. I'm, I'm actually going to get in line. She is. She is inspirational, and I don't want to let her go without talking about the unique work that she does, bridging pediatrics and adult sickle cell treatment and management. Um, and and also for you to even reflect on the fact that when you were at Wash U, you were in the Department of Pediatrics, and now you're yeah. in the Department of Medicine, yeah, doing yeah, the yeah. same basic job. So I'm just yeah. curious if you want to just yeah. give us a couple of minutes on that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I really try to do is leverage the methods of implementation science, which is all about uh, increasing the uptake of evidence-based practice into usual care. Uh, leverage that to really overcome efficiently overcome the barriers that adolescents and young adults with sickle cell face as they transition from pediatrics to adult care. You know, there is very clear and objective data about the rise in mortality around that time, around, about the increase in utilization around that time. So we know that that transition period is a problem. And the first phases of my work really said why, you know, and corroborated by my colleagues across the nation about how complex it is, about how it's just not about sickle cell, but about the many factors external to our healthcare system, well, within and external to our healthcare system that impact their ability to access care, the way they perceive themselves, the way they engage with providers, the way they navigate their own communities, all are challenging, right? And so implementation science is saying, 
well, if we have something evidence-based um, that we can use, let's get it going. And so I know that there are guidelines, like the American Academy of Pediatrics has produced guidelines about transition, and there are other organizations who are doing great work. And so my question is like, all right, so we got providers who want to do the best job. We got patients that want to be well. Like, what are we missing here? And these are the questions that I try to answer with my own work. Um, we had our lab meetings today and like I have some very curious data. So I'm kind of excited about that. But um, that's what I try what I try to bridge. And I think I learned a lot about implementation science at WashU, where um, there are some great folks who have um, uh, written and really are, are leading our field um, in the application of implementation science to healthcare um, and who have served as mentors, right, who have given me great advice um, throughout that. And so with young adults with sickle cell, okay, so I always like to tell people, look, like you were saying, look, I'm a doctor now, right? I'm successful, right? But when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you do really silly things, okay? You fall and crack your head, you know, and I don't have a chronic disease. And so you add on to that a chronic disease that shows up in, in a variety of ways. You add on to that poverty. You add on to that stigma. And then you can see how hard it could be to get through those spaces. Um, and then when we think more practically about that is there's a paucity of adult hematologists who are who care for sickle cell patients, okay? And so when 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 I think about myself individually, like how do I end up on medicine? Is because in researching transition patients, I care for them in clinic. That's those are my kids. Those are my people. So that spans both pediatric and adult populations. And so that's even when I was at WashU, my title was in pediatrics, but I had clinic on our you know in, in, in our adult hospital where how we did residency. Um, so, um, and so, you know, here I was able to really do that. Um, I, I am able to do both um, um, here and, and have a, a appointment in medicine, so. Let me, let me just ask you one quick question about this because I really enjoyed the papers that you've written. I like how you are sort of bringing together the mixed methods. How I, I really love when there's some qualitative research in there that elicits you and know, really gets to, to, to amplifying the voice of the people you're trying to help. and and learn from them. And, and uh, anyway, I, there's so much here that's that's so interesting, but there's no but. Uh, the one thing that came out for me that I wanted to ask you about is these kids, as they make this transition, you know, there's so much that they're still dealing with developmentally, especially in the adolescent period. What have you learned about how best to connect with them? Because, you know, you were talking about educational interventions. You're talking about breaking down barriers, making it easier for them. But at a lot of times, this isn't the most important thing on their mind, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it, I just wonder, as I was reading your, your work, it just was striking me how important it is around, I call implementation science. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we actually do yeah. this? How yeah. do we get people engaged and so forth? But, yeah. but what wisdom have you generated, do you think, around how to actually reach a lot of these people? So that is a great question, right? So I think one of my value propositions, right, is showing up as an African-American in a, in a to care for patients who have, who are majority African-American. I mean, like, um, you know, sickle cell is an evolution, evolutionary trait in any place where malaria is endemic, that's where um, sickle cell trait is prevalent. And because of the transatlantic slave trade, here we are. But, um, but I, uh, sorry to be crass, but um, I think no, part of it crass. is- No, that's not crass, that's truth. It is truth. But part of it is that engagement in clinic. and but. That value proposition is the fact that I don't 
have to overcome a lot of like cultural nuances to communicate with my patients about why I'm asking you to take hydroxyurea or um, understanding what is important to them, which to your point is kind of the beautiful part about qualitative research, right? Is it's not, it's not prescriptive. It's saying, well, what, what do you need? Okay. Let's understand that and let's pair with what we know. Okay. Or what things are working. And I think that is the approach that we need to have, whether it is in clinic or whether it is in our, in our research, we have to shift our culture uh, a, a bit to say, well, what is it, what is it that is actually important to the people we are trying to serve. Okay. And I think understanding that, so it may not be transitioning to adult care for the young adults I see in clinic, my priority might be like, I really want to work or all my friends are doing X, Y, Z. And so then how do I frame my care around that? Listen, I want you to do that too. In order for us to get there, here are the things that keep you out of the hospital, away from me, you know, with your friends. So it's saying like, what, what are, what do you want? And how do we move our system, move our practices to help them get there? Like, I think that is one of the things that's most important. And then I think the other piece is what are the things that can hold them accountable, right? Because everybody doesn't have a mom and dad. Is it an auntie? Is it a CBO that they go to? Is it their teacher? Like, who are the people in their lives that are helping to hold them accountable? And how do we as a healthcare system support those folks too? So we you know, focus a lot on our patients, obviously, but a lot of the transition, my work is with the parents too, saying like, hey, you know, back up a little bit, less so-and-so, or finding supports in place. Like, okay, well, you know, we believe in you, we got you. If And if you struggle, go to, you know, go to mom, go to, you know, go to your auntie here. You know, that's one of my aunties. Uh, well, I just say, yeah. well, and I know we're getting to the end, but I'll just say that I think it's a model for the entire healthcare system because what you're saying is we look at the whole patient Absolutely. and we look at the context of their lives and and the issues that they're dealing with, and then the medical stuff is part of that, but it's not defining of yeah. them. We have to understand the whole thing. I really I love all the stuff you're doing. So appreciate that you took the time to be with Anytime. us today, and and I just say I think it's important work, not just for sickle cell, but it sets a really great example for how we ought to be thinking about holistic care and. And, and culturally sensitive care for whatever population we're dealing with yeah. around this. And then and then you sharing your personal story, by the way. I, you know, I'm not going to forget that. That's oh, really thanks, just guys. Uh, amazing. Thank so you. thank you so much for thank that. Thank you so that much for really coming, great, CC. Really great. Yeah, anytime. It went by so fast. Hey, Howie, that was really great. So what's on your mind now besides what we've been talking about? Yeah, so it's not often that I can come up with something that's inspiring, but this week I can. I don't know that I've made uh, you know a movie or a TV recommendation here before, but I want to make a pitch for a show called Heart Stoppers. Uh, it is an LGBT series targeted at adolescents, but a former student who happens to be a surgeon now recommended it to me, and I was inspired by it. It is about a circle of high school friends finding their level of comfort with being gay, lesbian, and transgender in a society that is overwhelmingly not. And until you watch it, you don't even realize the massive void it fills. Owen Jones, uh, a popular writer in the UK, uh, in The Guardian wrote, quote, young LGBTQ plus people now have a show with relatable and frankly adorable characters who face hardship, but also have the possibility of happiness. Because of that, this show will be a lifeline for many. And he means this literally, since LGBT youth are four times as likely as their straight peers to attempt suicide. Positive representations can only help, but they remain sparse. And it gets back to some degree to, to our guest today talking about representation. 
You can find any number of family-oriented shows featuring straight characters with a coming-of-age storyline, but there is an absolute paucity for LGBT folks, and such a marginalized group might need this the most, even if all teenagers face angst and challenges. Suicides and behavioral health challenges among children and young adults have recently risen to historic levels. For most of media history, members of the LGBT community have been relegated to second fiddle, playing either the foil, the fool, or the villain. Tolerance might be found, but never really full acceptance. And we are now at a time when even tolerance seems to be fading in many areas, with bills passed in Florida and other states that put such youth in the crossfire of culture wars. This show doesn't portray utopia, but to use Mr. Jones' words again, queer people living and loving, finding acceptance, and yes, confronting challenges like anybody else and seeking to overcome them. It is available on Netflix. I would recommend it to anyone, whether you're straight or LGBT, whether you're young or old, single or attached. Let me know what you think. Well, that sounds great. You know, by the way, Netflix needs some good news this week, so it's good that you're promoting their their programming. But I, I am. I'm giving them help. But you know, this contrasted with the story in the New York Times this week on Ed Koch. You know, it, it just reminds me how recent it is that even someone in a position of power and influence, you know, felt cowed by public opinion and, and what would be the consequences of just admitting his sexuality and, and, and enable him to be his authentic self, that, that he had to hide who he was all those years out of fear. And, and it just wasn't that long ago. I mean, I, by the way, people, of course, still face a lot of challenges today. We know that I'm not minimizing that, but I mean, you know, just in, it's just recent history that you know, the Ed Koch thing, I don't know, that story really touched me also just I, to think I, well, the pain I, that he was in. A, yeah, and let me just say this. You know, I was 12 years old when he was elected. Um, I knew I was gay at that age, and he was uh, pretty much known to be gay, or at least it was a very strong innuendo at that time. And the one lesson I learned was that you had to be ashamed of yourself if you were gay, that it was not something that you could be comfortable yeah. about. And that's why this show means so much to me, because we p children need to see that they're not freaks, that they're not outsiders, that they shouldn't be ashamed of who they are. And I will say that story about Ed Koch impacted me the same way you're you're talking about it it reminded me of the shame i felt yeah and, and you're reminding me that that it not only harmed him but but so many others and, and including the article talks about the impact on the on you know aids and hiv and so forth because you know his he was in, inhibited to really take on the issue because of those and but anyway thank you for sharing that howie that's amazing and i'm definitely gonna gonna take a look at that that sounds great thanks You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Yale. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Sherry Wang, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.